Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Global Exchange on the CJAI Podcast Network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On today's show, you'll hear a panel discussion on industry's perspective on digital trade featuring Adriana Vega, Anna Barrera, Sarah Goldfeder, and Jeanette Patel. This conference was made possible thanks to the support of our sponsors. Strategic sponsors, Lockheed Martin Canada, General Dynamics, Davy Shipyard, and Pathways Alliance. Our bronze sponsors, UPS, Amazon, and Enbridge. Our, organi our organizing partner was the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. This conversation, we're gonna talk on about digital trade. So industry perspectives on digital trade. Uh, my name is Adriana Vega, I work at Scotiabank, and I am one of the fellows at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. So thanks, thanks to the CGAI for inviting me to moderate this panel. And indeed, I feel like everybody's like, why, why is this panel talking about digital trade? Uh, but, but I feel like that really helps drive the point that I'm going to hopefully make today, that trade, digital trade permeates everything that we have been talking about today. Uh, you know, we've talked about trade with different regions of the world, protectionism, um, silos, um, nearshoring, friendshoring, supply chains. And throughout the day, I don't think I've actually heard the words digital trade. And so this is kind of part of the reason why I love that we do this, this panel at this conference and a little bit later in the day to try and kind of connect those dots across um, all these issues that are or should be really at the top of Canada's um, trade agenda. And especially given the complex world that we have been hearing about, we find ourselves in. Um, a year ago, um, when we had this conference, and it was virtual because of the pandemic, uh, a similar conversation, I think at that point, was, was still focused very much on a stake talk, um, stake, stock taking moment, where everybody was pretty familiar with this idea of, you know, like we've changed our consumption habits, everybody's buying online, you know, everybody's kind of consuming this uh, digital streaming services. Uh, and, you know, QR code payments. And since then, I feel like that conversation kind of is now kind of a thing of pandemic times. Uh, and we no longer talk a lot about kind of all the architecture and all the policy infrastructure that actually happens behind the scenes to, you know, make that trade happen. And uh, part of my goal today is to kind of keep pushing that um, in the conversation and have some thoughts around the things that we could be doing more proactively in terms of like, policy conversations to um, to incentivize that digital trade. Um, I'm going to start with you, Anna, for this. Um, obviously, you guys at UPS see this from a very kind of front row seat. Uh, in thinking about the different business models, right, like the business to consumer model, the business to business model, um, long gone are the days of, you know, e-commerce and like you buy your books online and you get them at your door, you know, it's like that has moved on dramatically since then to today, but especially in the last couple of years, a lot has happened in the behind the scenes that I'm that I'm talking about in digital trade. So can you can you share a little bit more about what's been going on from your perspective? Yeah, so um, I wish Patrick was here because he has an amazing report. And if you haven't read it, I recommend you go and read it on Canada's digital trade strategy uh, because it is absolutely fantastic. And he mentions in this report about how pre-pandemic, most of the digital trade um, that was going on was business to business. Post pandemic, it's business to consumer. 
And we really saw this when uh, things shut down, you had to go online to purchase your things and they arrived at your door miraculously uh, if you used UPS three days later. <laughs> um, and this is this is the way how, of how things have been for the last three years. However, I don't think we necessarily think of all of the steps that have to take place for that product to actually show up at your door. Um, if you buy, if you go on Etsy and you buy something from the UK, you have to make sure that that purchaser maybe has um, the proper credit card that is actually approved and accepted through Etsy in that country of origin. You have to make sure that the customs and documentation are electronic and are proper and are proper uh, if they need to have a physical signature or if they need to have an electronic signature when they arrive at the border and then everything else that happens to the moment that it shows up at your door, right? So it's not just going online and buying something. There are multiple steps that need to take place in order to get there. And all of those steps are now digital. Um, and so, and it's a, a range of things. It's not just goods as well. It's also services, right? Um, I love the, one of the examples that I've, I've been thinking about is I, I play video games. Please don't judge me for this. <laughs> um, but I love having my Nintendo Switch and it's a light. So that means that I usually like to just buy my games online. That is a digital trade that right there, I just did a digital trade and it went from a good to a service. Uh, these things matter, these, these little steps, the way that we consume things now, it's all trade related and it's digital trade related. Uh, and if I can just build on that, um, this has implications obviously for business, right? As they adopt you know, different business models and they kind of try to work out, you know, what's the most profitable business model for my product or my service that has implications for policymakers as well. Right. Yeah. So is this kind of catching up? Is it adapting or what are some of the implications like from from your point of view? Yeah, we're seeing uh, governments adapt to it. We're seeing governments understand this. Uh, the Trade Commissioner Service has a terrific e-commerce site where they explain how e-commerce works. And I say I see Sarah there being very happy. Yes, you do a great job of explaining for small and medium businesses why e-commerce matters uh, and how the, how to use e-commerce to benefit and to grow your business. Um, however, there are still a lot of components to digital trade, such as cybersecurity and privacy, that can still be very scary. They're scary for small businesses who don't know which regulations are they supposed to be following. Is it the provincial ones? Is it the federal ones? Is it the ones of the country where they're going to be shipping their product? How are they going to be managing these things? And so there's still a few policy places that we need to start looking into and looking at how they impact the small and medium business companies. Yeah, and hopefully we'll we'll dig a little deeper yeah. into the SME file because that's a whole other bucket. But I'm glad that you brought, you know, some of the more like brick and mortar aspects of trade, because on the one hand, there's the digital trade and goods and services, right? Like the things that you were talking about, like it's a kind of like hybrid product that you're selling. It's like physical, but there's a service attached to it. But then there's a whole other kind of bucket of modernizing the trade system itself, right? Like borders, customs, processes. Um, and, and I feel like the trading system itself is kind of undergoing its own digital moment and 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 there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes for that particularly so there's a lot of things that we're going to try and cover today um, and that's one of them um jenna um anna was talking about the business to consumer the, and the business to business models um 
earlier, um, the speaker just before this panel was talking about growth, you know, and then when you see those graphs of growth, um, I think just generally speaking, the world's policymakers need to start having that ambitious conversation about growth, right? Like, where's the growth? How do we boost growth? And to me, entrepreneurship and innovation are obviously big, big parts of that puzzle. You know, we've heard throughout the day, let's invest in innovators, let's invest in, you know, science and tech. And, and I feel like that's kind of part of the promise of, you know, the internet and like digital age. So can you share a little bit more about how this digital marketplace is enabling that entrepreneurial, you know, dream and how is this good for economic growth? Yeah, uh, well, thanks for the question. Um, I think, you know, oftentimes when people think of YouTube, uh, they don't necessarily put it in the trade context. Um, you know, and when everyone in this room will use YouTube a little bit differently. Uh, and I think that's what it's designed for. <laughs> um, but YouTube really, I, I believe, is an incredible example of the digital marketplace in practice. And YouTube is an incubator and an accelerator for creative entrepreneurs uh, to succeed on the global stage. And so, you know, sometimes people think of YouTubers or YouTube businesses on YouTube as influencers or cat videos. But I would posit that they're entrepreneurs, they're exporters, and they're employers. Um, and I think, you know, in addition to that, you know, typical independent content producer or media company that you might think of accessing global viewers on YouTube, there's also a lot of small businesses who come onto YouTube to find new revenue streams, right? And so, and they tell us we've had, you know, 69% of small or medium businesses with a YouTube channel have told us that it's been adding to their bottom lines and helping them to grow their revenue. And I think, you know, kind of when Anna was talking about the different kind of components of how you can actually facilitate this kind of trade, um, for, for YouTube, the way that we have built uh, the platform to be part of their success is based on, I'd say, kind of three legs of a stool. And the first is it's global uh, in scale and in reach. It is open and it is based on a pioneering rev share model, revenue share model. So I'm going to unpack that just a little bit. First, in terms of global reach and scale, there are over 2 billion viewers who come to YouTube regularly. There's over 500 hours of content uploaded every minute. And that only happens because it is also open. There are no barriers to entry, right? And so when we think it's, it's quite unique because someone who came from a trade background, you know, we always worked to reduce trade barriers. And this is one ecosystem where, in fact, anyone can export their content with no barrier to entry, no fee for, you know, no pay, no pay to play. And, um, and, and that content can cross borders seamlessly um, with some notable ex uh, exceptions. But, but in general, this is like, there, this, there is free trade in digital content uh, on, a, on a pretty global level right now. And so those three things kind of reinforce each other to mean that anyone in Canada can start a business can grow their business on a platform like YouTube uh, and reach global consumers for free. And we're seeing that that, you know, is really becoming that accelerator and that incubator for entrepreneurship and uh, and having really important economic and social benefits. That's that's great that you, I mean, that, that example is great, you know, how you explain, you know, the whole like the chain, like from you are a content creator. And like many of us, I don't know, like I, I go to YouTube 
you know, rarely, like I don't really watch shows on YouTube, but my son does. Right. And he just doesn't watch TV at all. And not only does he watch videos on YouTube, he wants the swag and the, you know, the merchandise that's advertised on YouTube. And then I'm like, how do, how do I order it? And it comes from other countries, right? And then you enter kind of like the brick and mortar world trade. So, um, yeah. Well, and we're seeing a lot of Canadian content creators or like, so, you know, there's one, so a gaming example for you. There's uh, <laughs> Uh, a family, uh, five siblings, they're called, their channel's called It's Funny. They're from St. Albert, Alberta, uh, just outside of Edmonton. They have over 10 million subscribers um, and they started their own kind of side hustle businesses, right? Where they're, they have, they created an app, they created merch, right? They have kind of built up all these parallel uh parts to what their business looks like by accessing, you know, such large audiences uh, in, in the global ecosystem. Fascinating. Um, Sarah, I'm going to go to you. And I love that in the intros, you know, half the panel was like, you're wondering why I'm here. I will let you know why I'm here. So Sarah, can you let us know, you know, um, a GM, you know, traditional manufacturing cars, I feel like that's kind of the sector that everybody expects is going to be speaking at a trade conference, perhaps not at the digital trade conference. Right. So can you tell us why, why, you know, is this conversation important to GM and what parts of that digital trade rules are important um, to, to manufacturers? Well, and I think it's important to also consider that, you know, vehicles are increasingly becoming more than vehicles. And so that's a huge part of it. Um, and in my particular company, we also have um, OnStar, which is an app um, on Star Guardian, and I think has really found a home in as kind of the Gen X and millennial generations are finding themselves sandwiched um, and trying to keep track of all of their family members. I use my Guardian app for my father who lives in New Orleans. So it's, um, you know, these are things that we are becoming, you know, we have, we've had to wrap our head around uh, as an automobile company. But I think really for our purposes, um, you know, we, we see digital trade um, primarily in the format of data and it's data protection and it's data ownership. Um, and so the, the governance of how these, how this data is, is governed within different jurisdictions, how it's, how it moves back and forth through those jurisdictions. We need it as an automaker that's global. We need some of that to move quite seamlessly. Other parts of it, um, you know, are more amenable to some level of restriction. But I think that as we look at the world and we look at what we're trying to monetize, um, a lot of that comes into this this realm of of material and data that hasn't ever really been governed. Um, and so now we have. You know, the EU has done has has the GDPR, which is governing privacy aspects of it. Um, you know, we have legislation here in Canada that's governing um, privacy aspects of it as well. We have um, we have a new framework on artificial intelligence that we're trying to work through, and all of these things impact how the vehicles that people buy, that our consumers buy, will operate for them. Because the, what makes our cars better every year is the data we collect off of them so that we can actually look at that and say, you know, we need to do better on anti-collision measures. We need to do better on figuring out um, acceleration patterns. We need to figure out um, what we what do we do with teen drivers, right? So we have a teen driver application in a lot of our vehicles now so that, that limits access to certain aspects of the vehicle. If you've got somebody who might be a little prone to listening to super loud music so they can't hear the sirens. So we have all of these things that we are now 
now having to figure out how do we govern this as we go and we move from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And so I, I think from the General Motors perspective, that's really key to us. So in, you know, in ensuring that we have frameworks that exist in all of our marketplaces that we understand, that we, that we have clarity on, that we understand what the requirements are, how we implement those requirements, and what are um, you know, what are the consequences for us um, and for our dealerships, for example, should somebody not comply with some of those standards? The governance is really critical, and I think that's really our next frontier um, on digital trade. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. Um, and I feel like we've gone from, you know, we have free trade in digital, right? Like you can export your product anywhere. Um, but at the same time, different governance frameworks are in play and they keep you know emerging and sometimes even within jurisdictions there's elements of this fragmentation right so uh, we'll, we'll touch a little bit on the on the regulatory fragmentation um, but I do want to talk a little bit about trade agreements so when the pandemic hit 2020 you know the ink was still fresh on the new USMCA agreement Canada USMCA agreement and I want to call it new NAFTA because even the budget um, called it the new NAFTA so I feel like I'm allowed to do that um, and it was you know it's still pretty fresh pretty new and I feel like a big um, achievement in that agreement was that it had new provisions for for digital trade and there are some elements of digital trade as well in uh, CPTPP but I wonder if you know maybe things have moved a lot faster than what the trade agreements kind of were written for. So, uh, I mean, this is a question for the whole panel, but I know, Sarah, you were very involved in, um, in the Canada-USMCA. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on trade agreements as they apply to digital trade, and are they doing what they're meant to do when it comes to, you know, bringing down trade barriers in the, in the digital space? Well, they definitely have provided a framework for us to talk about it within the domestic context, right? So as we look at C27, for example, we're having to apply what is in, what's incorporated in that legislation with our with our trade uh, obligations. As we look at, there's a private members bill that um, impacts uh, technical protective measures and the ability of, of people to 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 manipulate those. Again, we have to look at that through the, through the lens of what are our trade obligations. So it does provide a certain set of guardrails, but I. Number one, when you say I was involved in the USMCA strictly as an observer, just want to put that out there, strictly as an observer. And, and I think that what we really need to see in the future are trade agreements that address digital trade that have the opportunity to adjust for the future. Um, and, and that doesn't mean creating language that is, that is not defin, you know, definitional. I, I think we need clear boundaries on, on, on items. We need clear definitions, but we also need the ability to go back and we kind of have it within the USMCA. It's a little scary to think of that we're going to be renegotiating that again. And as we go through, <laughs> Sarah nodding, uh, as we go into 2026, um, that it's, it makes, I think, a lot of us a little uncomfortable. But at the same time, it also provides an opportunity to look at portions of that where I don't even know if in 2017, 2018, we had a complete sense of how far and how fast we would move in some of these areas. And so, um, and, and so it's tricky, right? Because you're asking, um, you're asking a flotilla of aircraft carriers to figure something out and course correct um, in a very narrow strait, and it's um, and it's difficult. And so I, I think that it's really important 
to get it right. I think that the I think that both USMCA and CPTPP did a great job for the moment that they were in. I think that they will need to be adjusted moving forward. Um, but I, I think that's all within reach, right? I think that's the good news. And you know, we already have some legislation in Canada um, that gives us a little bit of pause as our as our obligations um, on. USMCA with Quebec's uh, privacy law. There's some pieces on cross-border data that make us a little uncomfortable. We and we also don't really know how those are going to be implemented. So I, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt for now. Um, but I think that there's it, it at least provides us a framework to have that conversation. Hi. Yeah, please. Um, I would also say we have examples across the globe now of what a digital trade agreement can actually look like. UK and Singapore have a specific digital trade agreement, um, which goes into great detail about different components of digital trade that we've all covered across the board here and how that can be managed. And then uh, Global Affairs actually recently um, put out a consultation on a what a Canadian digital trade framework looks like, um, which I'm sure we'll hear about uh, the multitude of um, submissions and how we can be a leading example into having a digital trade agreement. I think it is clear that we are a trading nation, but how we trade has definitely changed and we need to adapt to that change and our trade agreements are starting slowly, slowly but surely are starting to to look at that change that's it's encouraging Jenna, i don't know if you wanted to say anything on Canadian. well i think um you know i'm uh, i think the the key i understand you know a desire for flexibility as as uh industries change i think i lean more onto the predictability uh lens and i think that's one of the core functions that trade agreements provide for the business community um and you know i'm certainly in that space of uh, of watching carefully um, how uh, the USMCA comes into play with with various uh, pieces of legislation. So I'm just reserving uh, <laughs> reserving my my opinion at the moment. Sure, it's complicated. Right? Yeah, it's just like that's what I always say. Digital trade rules. It's complicated. <laughs> um, Anna, we talked about SME um, and the digital trade, you know, sort of rules framework. And, you know, Sarah, you were talking about compliance and how you guys kind of unpack this and then translate this into a compliance function, right? Like, how do, how do we make this work? But for an SME, you know, especially at this time, which I think, honestly, I think it's probably one of the hardest jobs out there, you know, being um, an SME and having this kind of added layers of complexity, you know, at a domestic level, internationally, at a time where SMEs were asked, you know, or they had to adapt very quickly and move their business models online and create their websites and take orders online. And now all of these rules apply to them as well. Um, and there are studies out there that say, you know, the vast majority of them are not comfortable with how prepared they are to comply with some of these rules. So what are your thoughts on where SMEs are at in this space? Yeah, so UPS actually did a few surveys um, in Canada as well as externally in the last two years to kind of get a sense and a pulse on SMEs and understand um, what are their concerns, how was the transition from brick and mortar to digital, and about half say that it was really hard to move into into the digital trade and that they had difficulty and that they didn't know how to do it um, and that they were concerned because of different things supply chain risks especially here in canada we had a few supply chain issues at the border 
um, digital component as such as cybersecurity and not knowing which policy frameworks kind of apply to them. And then very simple, like in very simple terms, uh, the technological component of it. What, how do they do this? Where do they go? Do they go to the Etsy's of the world? Do they go to the Amazon's of the world? Do they go to the Ebay's of the world? Do they just set up their own website and use Shopify on that website? How do they do this? Where is the, the best income for them to, to get there, right? Um, so there's a lot out there and not a lot of information for them to feel comfortable in doing this. And this is during a time where setting up a brick and mortar store was not an option for them. They had to figure this out on their own and kind of work through these processes um, and then hope that once their products showed up at the border that they would actually be able to cross in a safe manner or that they had paid the proper taxes and duties. Um, and make sure that there was also non-tariff um, non, non barriers once they were there, right? Those are, that's a whole other component that sometimes we completely forget about. Um, again, in Patrick's report, he very clearly describes some of the non-tariff barriers, uh, non barriers that SMEs have to go through, including uh, data flow restrictions, intellectual property, the blocking of certain applications and websites in different locations, cybersecurity regu regulations, which, which I already mentioned. Um, I think I'm hopeful that SMBs are now more equipped to be able to do this because they had to do it so quickly in such a short amount of time. But there's still a lot of lessons learned that we need to start implementing and that we need to start teaching them again. Yeah, and, and I would say, you know, I feel like our minister for trade is also a minister for small business, right? And so I feel like those things are linked and, and there's an awareness of the need to kind of support or, or, or provide that connectivity for the SMEs um, in this country. But I do agree that there's still kind of a gap in the knowledge base, right, amongst the, the companies that want to go internationally and just make sure that they can do so safely and that they are not going to be punished on the line for compliance issues, right? Um, Jeanette, I want to talk a little bit about the regulatory landscape and, and fragmentation, right? I feel like there are not a lot of times in the policy world where we have like a new area, right? Like we can kind of think creatively and think big and, and be ambitious just because the nature of policy is just it kind of evolves, right? And you kind of like overlay it. And now we have this digital marketplace and I feel like it's new and we have this big, you know, kind of play area, right, to kind of be ambitious with our policy making. And I wonder sometimes if we've kind of missed our boat and we're now having conversations around fragmentation and, you know, like jurisdiction and how all these things are difficult when the nature itself of the digital marketplace is, as you said, to be very free, right? Yeah. So what are your thoughts on, on fragmentation in that way? Well, you know, it's certainly something that is what keeps me up at night, right? Um, I think that... Um, the success of Canadian creators, which, you know, that the YouTube ecosystem contributed over $1.1 billion to Canada's GDP in 2021. And that is that is almost all export revenue. So what I mean is 90% of the watch time on a Canadian creators channel, so an online business on YouTube, uh, it's coming from international audiences. That revenue is earned from international viewers and is brought back into Canada and taxed into, in Canada. And so like that's where, you know, we fit in this digital trade picture when you have no barriers. So it's the, the those two legs of the stool of being global and being open um, is really central to how 
Canadians have been able to succeed. And I think that, you know, resonates for many of us from a, you know, in the trade community who understand that as a small market, Canadians benefit from having access to scale, global, global, uh, global consumers. And I think YouTube's design, you know, so, so I'm quite, you know, when we look at it, it won't shock anyone. I think we've been pretty, pretty specific about our concerns around C11, for example, because if we take a step back and we think, well, YouTube is designed to kind of serve each individual user um, and have that be a user-led content marriage, right? We marry content and, and creator with user on the basis of every individual. Um, and it's because we kind of have like this global Venn diagram of, of viewers, right? So of the billions of people who come to YouTube, a Canadian viewer might have more in common in terms of their viewing habits with someone in Mexico or Vietnam than they do with their next door neighbor. And I think that's just a reflection of, you know, our, our unique individuality and diversity as a community. Um, and so YouTube is designed right now to kind of leverage the globality of the platform and have that experience be, you know, uh, driven by that individual preference. And I will acknowledge that I do have, this is kind of personally salient for me because I am the daughter of an immigrant from India. And when my dad moved to Canada with his family, as a teenager, I think about my grandmother who would have moved, who moved to Montreal from India. And, you know, I think about her and I think that her needs when she would have, you know, been accessing content would have been so different from her neighbor. Um, and so we look at policies that are in flight right now and we, we do have concerns that, you know, in a very, with, with the best of intentions, um, we may be kind of uh, going in a direction that would tilt the equation and tilt the playing field away from a user-driven uh, kind of uh, experience into one where there is regulatory intervention and set in, you know, based on something like the national origin of either the content or the content creator. And for us, that puts at risk this kind of the, the kind of two fundamental precepts of the success of Canadian creators. And then just as a trade person, I go, you know, wait, why would Canada be a first mover in this, right? Like no other country is doing this right now. Why would we invite, you know, other jurisdictions to follow this lead? Because if if France or India were to kind of take a look at what uh, at policies like this and and do the same thing for for their online businesses on platforms like ours, that would disproportionately hurt Canadian creators who who are right now have this kind of open access to those consumers to those marketplaces. So, you know, we've we've been raising our our concerns throughout um, and uh, and and we'll continue to do so. But I think that, you know, that kind of fragmentation is just such a um, it's so important for markets like Canada, right, that are smaller markets. Um, you know, when you think about India, was, you know, it's a market of over a billion people, right? Fundamentally, how much do they need us, <laughs> right? Um, like maybe for some core things, but, but like when you're talking about markets of that size relative to our size, I think we really benefit from having scale and keeping that front of mind. So it's something we pay a lot of attention to. And, and I love the fact that it's, you know, the, it's a lack of coherence too, right? It's like you, you, you can talk about, you know, 
removing trade barriers and having market access, but then on the other hand, you're doing this first mover, like you said, well-intentioned, but there are consequences to that, to our competitiveness, right? Well, I just kind of think of like, you know, when I would sit on trade teams, like the negotiating teams, and you're negotiating to bring down tariff barriers or non-tariff barriers, and I go, so it, right now that doesn't exist in this ecosystem, but 10 years down the road, are we going to be having trade teams that then have to negotiate to remove the trade barriers that were created, right? Um, Absolutely. Uh, I feel like that's what I think when I, it doesn't keep me up at night, but I do think <laughs> it's, uh, it, let's not miss that chance, right? right. Let, let's not miss that, that moment. Um, I want to ask all of you um, a question for you guys to weigh in. Um, you mentioned, Anna, the paper by Patrick LeBlanc, who is a professor at the University of Ottawa, and he was meant to be with, this, with us on this panel today. Um, he couldn't make it, unfortunately. But his paper says, you know, a digital trade strategy for Canada, and I feel like it's all in the name, right? So mm -hmm. thinking about this, you know, strategic approach to trade in the digital space, you know, if you guys, each of you had one recommendation or one ask um, of policymakers, um, what what would that be? So I'm going to I'm going to start with uh, Sarah. Do you want to go for it? Sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it really is kind of, you know, to borrow one of the words that Jeanette used, it, it really is predictability and it's coherence. And so, you know, what I think we need more than anything else is something that not only makes sense to us, but that is consistent, that is predictable, um, and you know, kind of based in some of our core principles. Because you know, it the the cross-border flows and the international flows of information, data, um, personal information. It, it's all a, you know, kind of the last frontier of of un, um, uncontrolled trade. But there's a lot that there's a lot at stake in all of that, right? So it's not just, you know, what what do we stand to lose, but it's also what do we need to protect? Um, and so I think, you know, data ownership rights, having governance on some of that, having governance on data, on, on privacy issues, on data protection for individuals, you know, as a large global company, there's probably nothing more valuable for General Motors than its corporate reputation. We don't want to be, and I don't think any company wants to be, the one that's you know called out for having you know a, suffered a massive data breach or uh, you know been using information in inappropriate ways. I mean, no no corporation wants to sit at the table and have to have that you know war game played out uh, because it is it, it takes a it, it's a massive hit. And so I think that that it's important for governments around the world to include all of the stakeholders both large and small in those conversations but to you know to to provide some level of coherence and predictability and cooperation and that goes back to the trade agreements that it all kind of has to go back in that and when we we're talking you know when anna was talking about the small businesses i was thinking to myself okay when we sit around and talk about what we're looking for out of you know digital trade or data protection i mean it's a team of like a whole bunch of people that i've never met in person it's like we've got the customs team, we've got the logistics team, we've got the legal team, we've got the engineers, we've got the software developers, and we've got the public policy team and the com and the communications team. And if you're a small or medium-sized enterprise, to kind of marshal that kind of understanding of what it is you have to operate under is, is really onerous. And so I think that we do kind of owe it to be 
understandable as well as predictable. Mm. Anna, do you want to weigh in on uh, an ambitious digital trade agenda? Uh, I don't know if I could have said it better than Sarah, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I think that's exactly right. It's at the end of the day is making sure that we're having a holistic view of what digital trade actually means. Yeah. It's not just the entrepreneur or the Anna's going online and buying something or buying a book from a Kindle. That's not that's not what digital trade is anymore. You need to have the entire supply chain in mind when you're looking at this now. Every single step of the supply chain now has a digital component to it and every single one impacts the end product that will be in your hands, whether it be a service or it be an actual physical good. So making sure that you're not leaving behind all of the other parts of of that trade um, is crucial. That's great. And Jenna? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll build on what Anna was saying because I think having that really kind of holistic view of um, of the ecosystem is really important because, like I said, you might not initially have thought about YouTube in a trade conversation, right? But it is a digital good uh, that is flowing freely across borders right now. And, and that's something that Canada is benefiting from uniquely. So I think, you know, my kind of uh, message or what I would love to see is just an embrace of that opportunity because what YouTube is, is a proof point that Canadian businesses can compete and win on a global stage when there are no barriers. And, and like we see that every day because they're overperforming in terms of uh, you know, their access and, and how they're, they're connecting with international audiences. So I think like just recognizing that opportunity, having a comprehensive kind of concept of what digital trade involves, and then really kind of building up the literacy uh, internally to government around, you know, what is digital literacy today? How are we keeping our regulators and our policymakers uh, up to speed with how this is, you know, such a dynamic ecosystem uh, so that when they go through uh, policy and regulatory development, they understand that, you know, the technology of today, the consumer behavior of today, uh, how entrepreneurs are, are kind of uh, exporting today is different than what they are used to regulating and the, the ways that they have developed policy in the past. So the, the tools that they developed in the past may not be helpful, in fact, may be harmful going forward. So just having that kind of clear-eyed view of, of how we engage going forward. That's amazing because it's all, it's a shift, right? And like the entire, like entire business models within companies have completely changed, you know? And like, I hear it from GM, I hear it from you, I hear it from you. And like, certainly in the banking sector, that's very much the case as well where digital is now, you know, transversal across and it's really about distribution. It's not really about sending data. It's just how you distribute your product, right? So um, this has been great. Thank you. Some takeaway ideas that kind of come to mind for me is, um, is that need to strike the balance, right? Between clarity of rules and certainty and just allow for businesses to plan ahead um, along with, thinking ahead, right? And having that ability to pivot quickly and have those conversations, because obviously this, the space is moving very quickly even as we speak, um, that need to pursue coherence, you know, and like make sure that hands are talking to each other and that we're not actually creating artificial barriers to trade in a sector where we're actually doing pretty good. Um, and that need for the holistic view, right, of, of digital trade. Like it's no longer about the widget, right? It's about everything that comes attached to it. So um, 
Thank you so much, Jeanette, Anna, and Sarah for joining this panel. It's been great, great conversation. So thanks everybody for joining us. Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember, you can find the podcast on iTunes or wherever else podcasts are found. If you like the show, please remember to give us a rating. It really helps the podcast grow. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI, and thanks go out to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange. Mm -hmm.